Hello, everybody. For context, this was recorded mid-May. Return guest Elliot Weiner, who, by the way, wow, the first time that I had him on the show, terrific um, podcast, but one of the coolest. This is, as we've now added video, this is one of the things that I'm really looking forward to because once I start touring again, once in, in uh, hopefully 2021, um, when live touring um, fully starts up again, what will uh, happen is I'll be able to uh, record different adventures that I'm going on when I usually go in person to meet these guests. And if you tune into the one that we did back in November 2019 as well, you'll get to hear me fresh off of a tour of about the biggest virtual reality lab in the country. Mind-blowing stuff. But this guest is so good. You're going to love this episode. This is the last one from that new normal uh, time period and uh and and now from here on out all of all of the new episodes will be with our um with our new processes and and um new video and audio uh improvements and everything else and so thank you listeners and thank you patreon saint neil hoover with the creative businessmen podcast last plug for him we got three plugs because he's one of the highest patreon um uh supporters uh that i've had if you want to be if you want to support this show and get behind the scenes stuff access to the discord community and more go and uh support me on patreon enjoy today's episode are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast i am comedian shane moss and uh i'm i'm i was just catching up with my guest today we were talking about how we're how we're doing and yeah it depends on the day for me um but overall one of the things that i've been thinking a lot about is how um how can i add to my life and add to my career during this time and do things that aren't just like some compromised version of what i want to do but creating new opportunities for example, now doing um, uh, able to get whatever guest whenever I uh, I want for you guys because we can do things virtually, putting making videos of things so it can be on YouTube. All of these things that I should have been doing uh, this this whole time, and and so because of that, and because we're still tweaking some of the things, and and maybe the audio's not exactly up to where I'd like it to be all of the time, and there's some hiccups. I've been making sure that I, I'm putting out the highest quality content by searching back through my podcasts and connecting with some of my favorite guests who I have ever had on the show. And, um, and I, so I reached out to, I thought we'd have so much to talk about. I reached out to my guest today, Elliot Weiner, who I had on the Here We Are podcast, I don't know, what, two, three years ago? And that I had him wild. on, the, I think you were the first ever stand-up science show 
And it was in is in Des Moines. That was it was the very first one. Remember, I was a nervous wreck backstage before that one, and I was also having a bit of a manic episode at the time. Um, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. And and uh, but uh, since since that time, that that's kind of become my full time gig, pretty much. I've been touring around with that a bunch until until very recently, um, and uh, and now looking to do maybe virtual stand-up science. I've been, I've been putting on a bunch of different kinds of virtual shows. And gosh, I thought I'd love to have you back on uh, to talk about technology and these virtual worlds. We're all living in a virtual world right now. I've only had one virtual reality expert ever on the podcast. I had to get you back. Elliot, why don't you introduce yourself to the people? Sure. Well, I, I do remember that first show. Um, you might have been a rack, so was I. I don't usually get up in front of a, <laughs> of a well-liquored crowd and talk about science and try and be somewhat entertaining. But uh, no, so I'm, uh, so I'm Elliot Weiner, professor of mechanical engineering at Iowa State University. Um, I'm also in a couple of the departments, electrical computer engineering and aerospace engineering. Um, and I currently serve as the director of the Virtual Reality Application Center. So we love our titles in academia. We don't, you know, got to make sure that that signature line in your email is huge. And <laughs> I'm keeping that going strong. Well, comedians do the same thing with our business cards. We're like comedian, writer, improviser actor like oh you act have you ever actually acted in anything no but i'd like to so i put it on my business <laughs> card <laughs> but you actually got to do things when you put a title next to your name doesn't that come with some uh, some extra response is the title worth the extra responsibility i know i i have some friends of mine that are like you know always thought i wanted to be an associate professor now i'm like eh. No, thanks. Don't want the added administrative stuff. It's, you know, that's a great question. Um, overall, I'd probably say no. When <laughs> looking where I am now, all the stuff I have to do, and it's, it's, it's a lot. Like, I, I don't sleep a whole lot. But um, I, I really do enjoy it. I mean, you're right. Every title that comes, there's more to do. It, we're, we're Like most businesses, we're the king of, here's the title and the extra responsibility not really any more money or anything <laughs> no, yeah. kind of more of a prestige thing yeah so so i have a lot of that but overall i have to say i really um you know i love what i do it's a lot of fun and and you know i consider myself very lucky to have a profession where i really do enjoy normally going to work every day now i'm in my basement although you can't tell right now but um but uh, I, I know, once yeah. we're you know pre-covid or when we're finally past covid i i love what i do every single day it's a lot of fun yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> that is as a as a comedian who is often paid an opportunity. <laughs> um, I I get that, um, uh, but uh, yeah, I so I mean, actually, just before, quickly, kind of before we get into the meat of what I actually want to be talking about, just before we uh, before we started, you're talking about you're dealing with a lot of uh, a lot of. Co having a lot of Zoom COVID conversations, I imagine this is more related to like kind of the administrative things that that you're dealing with. Yeah, right? like any big entity, you know, we're you know you know university, and we you know we're in the range of thirty to thirty three thousand students, and you know eight to nine thousand faculty and staff, and so you know, and normally 
during a, a peak semester time, there's, you know, a lot of people in a relatively small footprint. So just lots of, you know, we shut down very quickly in the spring, right around spring break, and then had to transition to online instruction. You know, research essentially really took a big hit because we couldn't have people close together. We still can't. My center is still essentially shut down. So trying to figure out how we're going to open, what's going to happen in the fall. I mean, you know, the kind of things that a lot of people are going through that work for big, big organizations. And, you know, I don't want to take away and say it's a, it's a challenge for everybody. I mean, I mm -hmm. feel for, you know, the restaurants and, and, and definitely I got to give a big shout out to the first responders. I have a lot of friends who are doctors and nurses and just the ultimate respect for them putting themselves on the line every day dealing with this. So, you know, yeah. definitely thoughts and prayers with them. Sure. Yeah, I'm hoping to. I just had a chat with a, one one of my doctor friends um, and about the situation. I've been meaning to get him on the show. Um, uh, it was, it, gosh, it's it's. Uh, I, also, I just want people to understand what people are like. But there's hospitals that are empty right now. Why is that the case? Because they don't they don't realize all the COVID beds and 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 things are are overrun and yeah. it's like all of the kind of elective stuff is is down right now thus kind of giving the illusion of of like well they're just twiddling their thumbs <laughs> in there and it's it's uh like like so many of these things it's hard it's hard to really it's hard to really get through to people if they you know you can't you can't physically see it, um, and, and unless you see like the deaths on TV or whatever, it's it's hard for our evolved brains to really comprehend these things that we can't see. Do you think that? Do you think that eventually you could use um, virtual reality to? I, I I remember going in that room. I don't know if you have a a name for it, but that room you showed me like the MRI. You can go inside of a brain. You can see a. a, a Potentially, a, a neurosurgeon can see where an aneurysm is, so they can make a, a more accurate prediction of where to go in on the brain, and and, and blew my mind away. And it, and I, I just started taking an infectious disease course. I'm on like class number two, so please don't quiz me. Um, and I saw like the model of a virus. And I was like, this is incredible. It's a whole universe, like inside of this little thing that's like one fiftieth the size of a human hair. And it's really hard to appreciate this thing. Do you think that you could eventually kind of use some of, the, some of your models in virtual reality so people kind of really understand what a virus does and just why it's potentially such a threat and what kills it, what helps it, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of researchers that, that look at that right now. I've had projects in the past where we did that. That's one of the big advantages. So the room you were in was called the C6. So it's, it's all six surfaces, um, have projection, you know, really high resolution, 4K projectors behind them. You wear shutter glasses when you walk in, so the walls kind of melt away. The, um, but those projects, that's one of the huge advantages of using VR for these kind of things is that scale doesn't really mean anything. So I can take, the smallest virus, like you said, which, you know, you can't see with the naked eye, but I can either think of it in terms of scaling it up. So it's about the size of you or your head. So you can look at it or I'm making you really, really tiny so you can go inside of it. Um, <laughs> and that's a power that obviously in real life, we don't have that. But so that is, and there's been several projects, whether they've been for education, just to kind of show people um, if you're 
studying infectious diseases or you're a biochemist or something and you're looking to develop you know antibodies vaccines that can that can bind to these proteins and stop them what they exactly look like and what the shape of it is and, and it's pretty interesting i mean it's not my field i know a little bit about it just from what i've read and from experts i've been lucky enough to work with over the years but an example for covid for you know is that it is from the you know the sars family of, of viruses so it, it mutates relatively slowly. I mean, if this one mutates again, it's been predicted anywhere from 12 to 18 months, and it might mutate to a benign form. It doesn't affect us. Right now, the form is really infectious, and it's a relatively tough virus to kill. It spreads pretty easily, as we all know. Um, then you take something like AIDS, HIV, and HIV, like the minute it hits your body, it's continuously mutating. So it's almost like trying to have a vaccine that's attacking 10 or 20 or 30 variations simultaneously. In VR, if you can look at these things and understand these surfaces and these contact points and where they have to come, it can help them understand the bind points or where they have to um, you know, develop the vaccines, the proper antibody they say they can bind to it and render the virus harmless. It's, it's just like one piece of the puzzle from education. There have been some projects where they'll actually um, numerically look at all the different variations of what they can create and then try and simulate so you can show it. And, and the idea was there was I could actually visually, if you will, drive the antibody right into the virus and see if mm -hmm. it's gonna work. Um, yeah. Because sometimes trying to figure out, it's almost like two puzzle pieces and how do they go correct? And so if you keep hitting it the wrong way, you think this one doesn't work. But if I actually put it together the right way, oh, look, that's what I needed. So a lot of the computation you're doing sometimes literally is geometry, just trying to figure out the right orientation to, you know, is, is the current antibody you have going to bind to that? Um, and I might be using the terminology wrong, but, you know, it's not, it's not my field. So, so there are yeah. a few things out there. I think it can really help. Education, absolutely. It's a big thing. But um, the issue is, you know, we need stuff now. We need stuff like right yeah, now. Yeah. And, and a lot of this stuff is still years away from, um, from being in practice. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and, and then in, in a perfect world, would you then – you know, as I think of, you know, we say we use masks, we use distancing, we up our, um, you know, just various different sanitary practices, blah, blah, blah. We, we don't, we don't have uh, people packed in tight in comedy shows anymore. Whatever we, we pick and choose kind of how we want to live for a while. And maybe this, maybe this um maybe the mutation the next mutation in 12 to 18 months um ends up being evolving to a benign one because that's the only one that's able to live in a host for uh for long enough um so say you figure something like that out do you do you then uh, try to model uh so okay we're going to model this virus the anti uh, the um antivirus and all that terrific. Now we got to get information to the public to figure out these practices. Do you then like try to, in a perfect world, create some Sims version of like, okay, when when we say this to the public, this causes this people to behave this way, and these people to go to town hall and and start doing push-ups with their bazookas on their back or whatever, and then that changes the spread in this area. I. I do you do you foresee a, a world in the future where um, where things like that are starting to get modeled as well? 
Is there, that's a great question. And that, that touched on a different area, an area I've also worked in for many, many years. And that's where you get into this big data idea. And you've probably seen articles and lots of articles out there of how they're using big data to model it, using it to track it, things like that. There's so many interesting little things. So from a pure science point of view, to some degree, yes. And, and, and there's a little bit of background. I probably I won't take too long, but people have heard big data, artificial intelligence, and they think it's this new thing. And I'm not knocking it, but I can tell you, as someone who's worked in it now for 25 years, it's not new. We've been doing it for a long, long time. It's had a lot of different names. Um, you know, it was, we've had informatics, we've had bioinformatics, we've had analytics, we've had real-time analytics, we have big data, we have, artificial, I mean, it just keeps, but, it, but it's fundamentally, you know, the same thing. And there isn't just one thing that's artificial intelligence or big data or machine learning. There's lots of different terminologies you'll hear. Fundamentally, what is going on is you're taking data that you have already. And the more you have, the better. And the more that represents the situation you want to try and model, the better. And you're going to take that and you're going to use an algorithm. There's a whole bunch of them to use. And then try and predict what's going to happen in the future. And sometimes you're doing what's called interpolation. So I have a range of data. And I want to be able to really precisely model anything in that range. I have discrete points in that range, but I want to be able to model any point in that range. Or am I extrapolating? What's going to outside of the range? And so right now, with COVID, we are really in an extrapolation. And we have very limited data on, on what we know. It's new every single, you know, we're getting more every single day. But how does it spread? Um, I mean, you've seen models, right? Three, four weeks ago, the death model in the United States was down to 70, 80,000. And now we're back up there predicting 140,000. And that mm -hmm. depends which model you use. And fundamentally, big data, machine learning, the model is only as good as the data, you know, that, that you have to build it off of. And there's an old expression, we've all heard it, junk in, junk out. And that's that's true. If you don't put mm -hmm. good data in, it's not accurate. You're not going to get a good prediction out of it. You can have a lot of good data, but if it has a lot of bad data in it also, then that combination can cause error. So there's a lot of different techniques that we use, things such as you'll hear neural networks, um, radial basics functions, chaos polynomials, uh, adversarial networks. There's all kinds of funky math that we use in different ways to do these kind of predictions. What it means going forward, um, from a pure science point of view, if we actually had really accurate data once this whole situation is over of how it's spread and what goes on, yeah, it could be a very effective tool because you would get an idea um, for when the, when the stay-at-home started, when the restrictions started, did it affect how people traveled? Did they travel more, did they travel less? Did it cause the hotspots because people were flocking certain locations, you know, one place or the other? But getting that data is really hard. Um, the cell phone data is definitely one thing that's been used. There was some interesting stuff that I saw, for example, right around spring break time, mid-March, when they started to put restrictions in, and there was a number of articles that were published that just showed, you know, geographic location of cell phones leaving Florida. And you could instantly see all over the country where they were hitting. And you're thinking to yourself, if the virus was there and if a few of these people had it, it's just spreading it across the U.S., even across the world. Um, but then again, you know, you don't necessarily know who had it. You don't know, you know, how accurate was the cell phone data? Who would they come in contact with? So there are things you have to model. The other interesting part of that, so there's a lot of good science there and there's a lot of good math there that could be very useful. On the other hand, though, 
which is one of the things we have to think about too, there's a huge privacy concern. Mm. So to get this data, we need to know what you're doing. We need to know, I mean, in a perfect world, if you were telling me to model this situation, I'm going to say to you, I want to know where you're going, you know, every second, every minute of the day, like very fine grain. Are you, what are you touching? I'd love to have sensors on you. Are you touching your face? Are you touching door handles? Are you touching, you know, how close other people are you getting? Things like that to get that kind of, that's unrealistic, obviously, Mm -hmm. but to even get some of that data, we're going to be tracking people. And as much as you say, like a person like me, a a scientist, yeah, I'm going to anonymize it. I I honestly don't care about your name or anything like that. I'm going to care about some gender and demographic information because that's going to help me to model, you know, our males 45 to 55 traveling more than, you know, children or, you know, or or males the age of 18 to 24 or women, you know, between 30 and 35 or something. Mm -hmm. Try and figure out where the trends are. Our commercial company is going to feel that way. It's going to be pretty ripe for them to take that data and do a lot of marketing with it. And so there's going to be huge, huge privacy concerns. And that's going to be a big issue. What can we get our hands on? How accurate is it? Does it have, are the, is the errors and, and omissions from the data that we have big enough that it's affecting the model and the output? Um, so right now, you know, for example, a lot of the models they use are, you know, they're, they're a best guess. And there's a lot of assumptions that are put in there. One of the big ones to give you another example of that is, um, I'm trying to remember, I think the, when they initially, I want to say probably early April, if I, if memory serves, their initial models for death tolls were around between 125 to 150,000 people in the U.S. were going to die, maybe even more. And then in a matter of week, a week or two, it dropped down to 70, 80,000. And social distancing had been put in place. A lot of state homes have been put in place. And people were like, you know, how can you how can you be using these models? They're so inaccurate. That that's crazy. You're 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 off by a hundred percent, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the big assumptions in one of the models they were using was, and this wasn't the only reason, this was one of the big ones though, how many people were actually going to adhere to the stay-at-home policies and were going to adhere to social distancing. Their model used a 50%. They figured about half the people would actually do it. They didn't know, they just took a guess. You have to. Mm-hmm. Well, it turned out as they looked at it over that couple of weeks, they realized that it was more in the 70 to 80 to 85% range initially. We're doing it, which has a dramatic effect on the number of people that are going to get infected. And there are people who are ultimately you know, going to get sick and maybe even die. Um, you know, so when you see these, these current, uh, you know, people protesting stay at homes and things like that, that's still a relatively small percentage. You know, at yeah, this yeah. point, it's very, very high number of people who are adhering to it. But that just shows you how one assumption can really just throw a model, you know, the results and, and change them 100 percent. So there's there's a lot of good science there, like I said, but there's a lot we don't know. So it's, it's going to be a while before we have a model that could really accurately predict what's going to happen. I would love to talk a little bit about how. I mean, you've been doing this for 25 years. You've shared you've shared some of what you do at dinner parties, you know, things ran it by a number of different people and seen different people's reaction to what you do and, 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 you know, have also had to apply for grants or, or like, you know, tell, explain to people why you think what you do is important and some of the downsides of blah, blah, blah. In terms of getting people to kind of understand science and modeling to appreciate it how do you have any ideas for you know 
I, I fancy myself a bit of a science communicator and I, I fall for some of the same common tricks of getting frustrated when a prediction doesn't bear out the way it's said. And, and, you know, I think there's these kind of, we're, we're not, humans aren't terribly good at statistics and you know the weatherman says there's a 70 percent chance of rain and then it doesn't rain and like well what do they know and it doesn't people don't realize it doesn't mean that they weren't wrong it just means that the 30 percent happened right and and even even though even though science has like gone toward the direction of of modeling the weather better and better throughout human history of of like going from rain dancing to farmers almanacs and so on and all the modern things it it doesn't make it any less frustrating <laughs> when when you know you plan to camp out and you get rained on and only there's only a 10% chance of rain or whatever you know these these phones are amazing um uh, uh, just what's happened in my lifetime with with phones like what i'm holding in my hand right now I would have never been able to even grasp as a child what's possible. And it doesn't stop me from wanting to throw the thing against the wall uh, when I have some, some bad reception. And, and so, you know, and of course you're, you're always going to have like the fringe people out there of like, well, the gays caused the hurricanes or whatever from the religious crowd, or you'll have the conspiracy theorists be, that overestimate science, uh, scientists' ability. <laughs> like, the scientists are causing the weather for this and that reason. Um, but, but then just the normal human condition is people just kind of frustrated that it isn't better or take it for granted, you know, how, or, or just fully can't really understand what goes into the scientific um process do do you have any thoughts on how to like build appreciation um just just in the same way you know a a locksmith if they if they mess with your door for an hour um and and uh, because they're new to it and don't know what they're doing but they worked really hard on it and you can see that you really appreciate their work but when a, a locksmith with 20 years of experience comes in and opens your door for two seconds, in two seconds, you go, hey, what the hell? How are you charging that much money, <laughs> even though they're doing a better job? And, and, and there, it seems like that kind of happens with science a little bit. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it's funny you said, you know, as a, as a professor who's continually chasing funding, You've got to be able to um, tune your message to if, if from just from a funding perspective, who you're talking to. If I'm talking to a company, it's going to be very, very different than if I'm talking to the National Science Foundation or a federal agency or if I'm going to the DOD, like the Army or the Navy. And, and so just even in that and these are, you know, a lot of us are, are you know, academics or researchers and, and we spend a lot of time doing research. And that's a very commonality, but, you know, but a common community. But, yeah, there is a lot of variance there. Um, so I'll tell you, I'll, I'll cut to a more general thing. Um, if you so here it is. So, so one way is if you find those academic researchers, you do it because, you know, it should be done and it's solving a real problem. But that's a relatively small community. Um, it really is. There, there, there's a lot of us that do that work. But overall, in the grand, grand scheme of things, and I was I was struck, I was sort of giggling, not giggling, but the humorous when you said the dinner party. I can tell you no one's asking me to explain this stuff at dinner parties. It's sort of a, it's sort of a joke in my family. I have two daughters and my wife, and uh, 
that if I ever say, do you want to know why that happens? They can't all yell no fast enough. You know, they just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's generally not happening. Um, the number, so the other thing I will say, the one way to get people's attention is tie it to money. If you can tie it to money and say, look, I'm going to save yeah. you money. Or if you're selling a product, I'm going to be able to, you're going to be able to produce it faster, but you can still start and cheaper, but you can still charge the same amount. So you're going to make more money on it. Or if it's like a homeowner, hey, if you do this thing, you can save money and you can do repairs yourself. You don't have to do repair anymore. That is a great motivator. I hate to say yeah. that. I'm not a capitalist. Like, I mean, no, I'm not, it's, but I, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a big motivator. I, I, I love thinking about evolutionary theory and I just think it's the most beautiful, amazing stuff that there is and endlessly fascinating. I just want to share it with the world and, and the, Usually the best ways to do that is like behavioral economics. <laughs> like yeah. How can you, oh, I could put a lavender smell in my store and people will buy more stuff. Okay, now I'm listening. <laughs> or, 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 or make it about sex, you know. Um, you know, that would be another. I was going to go a little more generic and say entertainment. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's another way. So like, you know, here we're talking, you and I were joking about virtual backgrounds before we got started. And, you know, here's here's a perfect example. This is one of my favorite ones. So if I have my head in just the right location here, this looks like, you know, a pretty high-tech lab until you realize what's behind me. That's my Iron Man. Now, I'm not yeah. really building it. But yeah. you, you joke about um, different, you know, entertainment and movies, whether you're talking about, you know, older movies like, the, well, old for me, not old for the kids, but old for the kids, not for me. Like the Matrix, but now the the event, you know, Marvel's mo Marvel movies like Avengers, things like that. The DC movies, you know, whether you have uh, you know over with Tom Cruise, um, which was when he was using the interface and he was the cop in the future, and they could predict the future. Yeah, I mean, Minority Report. I think yeah, that called. You you into Westworld? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Don't. I'm behind though. I'm saving them. Don't spoil it for me. Um, I'll, I'll just I'll just say lower the bar a little bit for the new season. Okay. I, I think because they made the second season a little too complicated for some folks, I loved it. Um, I think that they took note in like simplified things a little bit for the new season. The second season yeah. I did not enjoy, but I watched the first episode of season uh, three and I really enjoyed that one. So oh, okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. But, but e email me and let me know what you think because I'd be curious to know. Um, but, you, you know, speaking of that show, you, I mean, they, they not only throw around words like heuristics, mm -hmm. but they use them correctly. Not, right. not just, to, not just to sound fancy, you know, like that's your average sci-fi oftentimes is just like, well, do you have the Z 43 and like, Oh, well they sound like right. they know what they're talking about, <laughs> but they actually used a lot of stuff like really quite well in, in, uh, in Westworld and, or, or like the movie inside out, I think did a really nice job mm -hmm. of conceptualizing, um, kind of what, what some of therapy is about. Well, it's very funny. You said that because I get that, um, it's sort of a running joke in my family. My, my oldest daughter is 19. She's in college. And her and I are very similar, the same mindset. So she just recently watched a show. Uh, I haven't watched it yet on, on Amazon Prime. I think it's Upload. And she goes, Dad, you have to watch it. I'm waiting to hear how you criticize all the technology. And, <laughs> yeah. Which you're right. Westworld, you know, like season one, and again, not my field, but when they had those episodes on like the bicameral mind and stuff, those were actually really theories. I mean, whether they're yeah. or not, 
but at least it was based in some kind of fact. Uh, yeah. You know, a lot of times I joke there was a movie a long time ago, I don't remember what it was, and they were talking about, well, how do we solve this problem in space? And the producer goes, oh, it's just one line of dialogue. We have, Thank God we invented the blah, blah, blah. We can <laughs> yeah. solve any problem, that, any scientific problem we need to. You know, and as a scientist, it's kind of like, you know, like we joke about the Iron Man suit, but to be able to fly and, you know, to be able to be stable in air like that, and they just, and, you know, they had little flaps and ailerons on the suit, things like that. But in reality, when he's like hovering and all of a sudden he lifts one leg a little bit, he'd go freeing off. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. I'm sorry, everybody, for having a <laughs> mechanical engineer and aerospace engineer ruin every Iron Man. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I want this. I want that too. But it's just a long way from reality, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, if I could. Um, indulge you can take a hard pass on this one if you want but but um just uh i guess this is maybe a little more in the realm of philosophy but i would imagine working with virtual reality you have to find yourself thinking about it and considering uh, uh, with it in, in terms of how these tools are interacting with the human brain my my question is what do you th- consider to be the mind um you know like the the mind's beyond the brain because my body's attached to it now i'm holding a pen in my hand i'm writing things in my mind down i i can conceptualize the the environment that i'm in here that's kind of part of my mind i i if i don't know something i know i can google it now that's like a tool that's also kind of this appendage um do you you have any thoughts on like kind of how you conceptualize that i imagine i mean i mean i imagine you have to think a little bit about oh we think a lot about it yeah you you would think people that know me and you know me a little bit like i'm i'm fairly analytical person all right i'm data driven but we have to think about those things all the time in fact i have a great little lecture a a presentation i give and I, i even do it in class sometimes to sort of mess with students a little bit and we talk about um, I'll take a little bit farther than what you're doing. We'll come back to what your point, but like, what is consciousness? And so someone's like, well, I'm human because I have a soul or I'm conscious on this. I say, okay, well, let's consider this. Cause we're, this we're actually pretty close to IBM is actually can almost do it. So let's say I have a supercomputer that, and I have an interface and, you know, and just for hypothetical purposes, we'll say you have a nice floating head. Everybody likes a nice floating head on your screen. So it looks humanoid kind of thing. And, but in reality, it's computer behind the scenes and you're asking it questions and it's giving you completely reasonable answers. So you're having a conversation with your computer, but what's really going on behind the scenes is just a brute force method. When you ask a question, it's fast enough that it can run through, let's say, trillions of possibilities in real time and it pops off a response to you and it keeps doing it over and over and over again. So there's no brain behind it. There's no artificial intelligence or anything. It's not reasoning. It's just literally brute forcing your, your input and giving you an appropriate response. But to you, you're having a conversation with it. So what I ask my students is, mm-hmm. is it conscious? How do you know the difference? If I can fake it, isn't that the same thing? Mm-hmm. How do you know? How do you know when you're actually talking to somebody that they're tuned in and focused on what you're saying or they're just kind of giving you a response? Sometimes we pick up on those little cues. You know, you're on the phone with somebody, you're asking them questions, and all of a sudden they kind of, the responses become a little bit more spaced out. 
they're kind of like, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. And you're like, oh, they're doing something. I can tell. But sometimes <laughs> yeah. you can't. So, well, you, you know who's good at that? Um, every girlfriend that I've ever had <laughs> has right. has a very good ability to know exactly when I stopped listening. So so it is it is really interesting <laughs> to to think about what does that mean because then we when we're designing these environments, being able to utilize that to some degree is helpful. Mm. Um, if you can, so one thing we've learned, and we, we I think we talked about this in our previous podcast, but. Primarily, virtual reality is visual right now. I mean, it's like 95% visual. You can do some sounds. We can do some spatial sounds. We really can't do touch. We really, you can do, there are companies that pipe in smells. You can do a little bit of that, not to the degree that we do in the real world, but we can do a little bit with smell. We can't really do much with touch. Um, and, you know, your other senses, it's just limited. So visual is the primary channel we're, we're giving you. Eventually, that's not going to be the case. We're we're going to find other ways. It'll probably be long after we're we're gone, but it, it'll happen. And you know, as you're building these things, what you what, what what we know now though is even if I just add in a little bit of audio, I can degrade the visual realism significantly. But people come out of the simulation going, "Oh my God, that felt so real!" And I can have ones that visually look photorealistic, like just like the real world. I put you in there, no sound no touch maybe at all. There's a little bit of haptic stuff we can do. It's pretty limited, but none of that. And then I put people in almost a cartoony looking world, but I've added some audio into it. Maybe there's a little bit of touch into it. And they come out thinking it's just as quote immersive as, mm. as the visual one. So it's the kind of thing where, and what, what's triggering that? Well, it's, mm -hmm. it's the brain. It, it's those different senses, those different modalities that we're used to every single day. So how can I play on that? Well, as an example, if I really want to get VR very widely spread, like you said, everybody's got a phone. Not everybody can have a high-end head-mounted display. They're not going to own a C6. That's a multi-million dollar device. But if I have a phone and I can somehow, I don't know how yet, do more than one sense, more than just visual, someday we'll probably be able to, does that really give a, a huge level of immersion to a person? They're wow, they're in their own memories or this simulation is triggering a memory and they just, they're forgetting that it's technology and they're just using it for a design task or an art task or just, you know, nostalgia, whatever the case may be. Everybody's got that device and instantly it could be spread to everybody. So mm -hmm. there's, and we have, we think about that a lot where that can, to lower that computational power so I could do it on a phone, I could instantly reach millions of people but because I can't run the highest fidelity because the, you know a phone is not as powerful as a big desktop computer or a big supercomputer. So there's times where those kind of um, you know, trade-offs are able to be made because of what you're talking about. What's consciousness? What can the brain, how can I sort of get someone more into the simulation by using these little techniques? And then that has a real tangible effect onto the computing platform we can actually deploy it on. And so it really, really is kind of a, I love that. I think it's so neat because you have these things like you're talking about, what are feelings, what are emotions, what is this, what is that? But then, it, like I said, it can have this real direct effect to, you know, mathematical properties that we're working with every single day in computer graphics. So it's, 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 it's really interesting. I'm not a psychologist. I work with a lot of them very routinely. Um, you can extend this out to even just the uh, psychology of interfaces. How we, how we respond to different colors, to different fonts, to different, you know, dark themes came out in desktops and mobile the last couple of years, really popular. 
everybody's going to dark theme. Why? Is it because it's new or do people really like it? Or does the human brain really react better? If, if I have lighter text and a dark background, I don't know. I really don't know. But there is a surge in popularity and it's something we need to, you know, we look at. Hmm. So there's so many cool aspects to this. You know, he says, and I, I do, I love do, I love just kind of talking about it and seeing where it can go into play. I'm not an expert. I don't research that directly, but I do use it in my research when we can. Absolutely. Hmm. I, I wonder how you could create different virtual environments to bring out aspects of yourself that you want. One, one thing as, as someone who, uh, um, you know, as, as a thought worker who, 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 um, barters their ideas for, um, money, hopefully, um, I, you know, I, I try to be attuned to, I just had a good idea pop into my head. What was what was happening? <laughs> like, what was I just doing when I had that idea? I want to replicate that. Oh, it seems like when I'm in the shower, I tend to get some of these. Good, may, all right, maybe be a little more mindful of that when I hop in the shower. And 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 a lot of our kind of conscious experience um, is adapting to our environment. We're having a conversation about, I'm having a lot of thoughts about consciousness because I'm in the environment of a conversation about consciousness right now. Whereas if I was around the um, table at Thanksgiving with my, um, you know, extended family that's never had a conversation like this, those thoughts wouldn't even occur to me to have in the first place or let alone share. And and I'd maybe be, uh, you know, trying to think about Packer facts or, or something like that about the, the football season um, uh, going on. And, um, and, and so I, I often kind of, I often kind of think, how can I put myself in an environment that brings the best out of my, you know, I have a zillion, I've, I have all sorts of content in here. I have a lifetime of memories and weird facts about sloths or zebras or that aren't relevant right now and i'm not experiencing because i don't need them but but say i want to have more say i'm writing a book about consciousness i would want to put myself in the environment of like talking with more people like yourself having more of these conversations is there a way that you could eventually create i mean i guess this is sort of what you're doing with the with the like c6 where you're putting people in an environment where they can these are experts on the brain and they want to understand it better. And now you're able to put them in an environment that allows, you know, a catalyst for getting the best out of them. Yeah. One of the things we enjoy in my field and uh, which is doing a lot when I'm working, I mean, I, I kind of span a lot of disciplines. It's kind of a fun part of my job when we're doing the computer graphics simulation piece, whether we're doing virtual reality, augmented reality, you know, one of the extended realities, as they're called now. One of the most uh, sort of enjoyable moments we have is when we deploy a technology to somebody, and usually it's pretty new to them, depending how we deploy it. Whether it's a phone-based HMD, you know, like a Google Cardboard on their on their face, or it's a really high-end head-mounted display, or or it's a projection screen, or a bunch of them, whatever, is we kind of feel we've done a good job if pretty quickly, and sometimes it'll be within a few minutes, maybe half an hour, and if they're more complex, it might take a couple hours of training. But when we see them forgetting the technology and just doing their job, 
and they're just in the environment and they're not thinking about how do I navigate or I have to wear these glasses or what or this this head mounted display and how they all of a sudden they're just like in whether designing I've had ones for designing farm equipment to jetliners to uh, disease models to um, surgeons that are going to be doing operations and you know one example that was just really really cool we had built a, a simulation one of the ones along the lines of what you saw we could take in ct scans and mri scans and we could build fully three-dimensional models of of the human anatomy of an actual patient that had a tumor and then we had a whole bunch of mathematical models in the back end that would actually go through all that data and and virtually extract the tumor so they could look at the tumor separately they could look at the anatomy they could look at where the tumor was so before they go into an operation, they're actually going to go and remove that tumor. They want to get as much of it as they can. And I remember this. We had two or three surgeons from Des Moines come up, and they were in the C6, and they were looking at this patient that had a fairly complicated tumor. The tumor was kind of wrapped around in a, in a fairly complex way. The patient's fine, by the way. She, she survived and is doing great and is tumor-free. Spoiler um, alert. I come know. On, well, whenever I talk attention. about that, people always want, like, how'd the patient do? Always in, like, they're okay, you know? And um, the, we put them in the environment, and they had the stereo glasses on, and they were driving around with, with a game pad. It was almost like an Xbox. It was a, a different model, but it was almost like an Xbox game, game pad. And within five minutes, they had just forgotten that they were – not forgotten, but you weren't seeing them – looking around sort of in awe and looking at the controls they were driving, they were just doing it. And they're talking about and using all these medical terms at this point that I didn't know. They're like, well, the posterior angle here, and we're going to go in more anterior and oh, whatever they were saying. And I was sitting back with my students going, do you see this right now? Like they're just, they're using it. And they didn't even realize what it took for us to build it and how that no one else has this and what they could do. And they came out afterwards and, and then I had to sort of bring them back and say, if you had done this using your technology and right away, then they realized what they had just done for, for the last hour. And they came out and said, oh, my God, we never would have been able to do this. We couldn't have ever seen these views or understood it the way that we did now. And for us, that's just so cool to do that. Like when you can, the technology almost melts away and you're just in it. And that's, that's if you think about, we keep bringing up the phones. That's how it is right now, right? You pick up your phone, swipe, 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 and you're just using the app. You don't really think about anymore that it's this little device, and it's electronic and battery driven. And how can it do all this stuff? And it's got graphics and it's got sound and it can transmit data over the air. And, you know, there's a comedian, you know, that, that I've heard do a stand up routine talks about it's magic. You, it's just magical. It's incredible. And you, the fact that, like you said, we all get frustrated now. Oh, man, it takes five seconds for my mail to load. I'm so ticked off. Well, you know, the, think of all that's going on. Maybe you could be patient for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what your uh, when you when you brought up the concerns of like the difference between, you know, you could grab all this great data and use it to create a, you know, a potentially safer world, guide, uh, you know, learn more about a pandemic. Um, help guide a society better, you know, someone else gets that same thing in their, their wrong hands and, and uh, they're using it to market. To, there, there's a similar thing going on with the phone, like Absolutely. terrific. Okay. I'm going to get on here. I'm going to share one of my jokes or plug a show or something like that. Send it off into, into space. Maybe a few people will 
will show up and get to learn a little bit of, of science while having some laughs along the way. You know, maybe I better look at uh, the Twitter a little. You know, maybe I better keep on scrolling until I'm outraged about <laughs> what politician did what today. And, 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 and you get like, you get sucked in so fast. Is there ever going to come a time when you put on a virtual reality helmet and it's just like, man dies from forgetting to eat after putting virtual, I mean, this is, there's been cases of this with video games. There's, I mean, it hasn't been that many. I think that's maybe a little overplayed, but how how much of a concern is, is this something that in, uh, this is something that we might need to think about creating regulations where like, Hey, we found that when Netflix just automatically plays the next episode, people aren't able to break away because it's it's harder to click the button to stop the episode than it is to hit a button to start an episode. You know, at, at what point at what point do we have to decide as a society like do we create pre- policies as like every every hour a little thing has to flash into the virtual reality and be like, Hey, are you sure you're still feeding your children? <laughs> yeah. You, you know what? You just brought in like three or four careers of research <laughs> into that. Like one little, little statement you made. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. So, so, you know, from the development point of view, from the research point of view, I do think as, as engineers and researchers and scientists, we need to think more about the policy. A lot of, Researchers don't want to think about this, not really in their wheelhouse, but to think about from a policy perspective or what are the possible ramifications, you know, there's always good that can come out of it, but is there a lot of bad? And um, not that you're going to have a lot of control over that, but if you're developing it from the beginning, you will have some control. So it is something, you know, yeah, how many, if you're, if you're Facebook right now or you're Google or you're Apple or you're any of these ones, they want virtual reality, augmented reality to be huge. They want everybody wearing headsets or, or maybe it's going to look like, you know, a set of eyeglasses like this someday. Um, they want everybody wearing those like we're using our phones now. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, you think about things like phones, like distracted driving or people getting hit in major metropolitan areas because they cross streets without looking up on their phone. Those are serious issues right now. And, and yeah. I'm not saying it's, you know, overwhelming like the pandemic or health issues, but those are considerable issues. If we're all wearing virtual reality or we're all seeing different images in our glasses or whatever as we're walking down the street, absolutely, there's going to be issues with that. Mm-hmm. As a developer, am I responsible for you know predicting that? No, but you. It, I also think you can't close your eyes and be naive and say these aren't right. going to happen and you should be thinking about that. I'm a bomb maker. I just want to make the best bomb right, that there exactly. is. <laughs> I, don't know, right, I don't know what they're going to do with it. You know, right, right. You know on, the other, on the other hand, what I thought was interesting is you were talking about it and you said, because I was sort of formulating an answer. And I'm like, well, you know, like I said, Google, Apple, they would really want you to have this. And then you said regulation. As soon as you said that, the companies, they want no regulation. Yeah. So, and the perfect example right now is our data, is data privacy. So, you know, Europe passed a pretty sweeping data policy, uh, you know, data policy on what could be used, what couldn't be used. People have access to their data. Who owns their data? The U.S. right now, and not, not everybody realizes this, and here's the thing. I mean, if you don't, and I'm shocking you, I, I, I apologize. Again, sorry I had to break the Iron Man facade, but this is another <laughs> one. You don't own your data. So if you are logged into Facebook and you're logged into WhatsApp or whatever it is, you gave them full permission 
for all the stuff on your phone, your photos, your images, your text, everything you gave it access to, you basically signed over all that data. They have full access to do whatever they want with it. You don't control your data. And for all of the policies and all the way they're going to go and, and to the public and they're going to say, oh, you know, we protect your data. Da, da, they're not. They're marketing it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how they make money. I mean, that's that's ultimately Facebook. Why it's so valuable is because one, a ton of page views because you get ads. But two, because they have this incredible database of users and they know everything about them. If you mm -hmm. want to know what females age 18 to 35 are doing on a Monday night at seven o'clock Eastern, they can tell you because they have all millions and millions of them and they know what they're doing. Hmm. So if you regulate that and you give the power back to the people or you limit what the companies can do, that's limiting their profits and they don't want that. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I'm a big thing. The data should be mine. Now, on the other side, though, from the practical perspective, can you live your life and stay away from this? No, I, I try to a little bit, but there's no way. I Google all the time. Well, they have my IP address. I guarantee they know who I am, and they're they're knowing what I'm Googling. I go to Amazon. We buy stuff. There you go. They have a profile based on you. I don't belong to Facebook as an example, but I guarantee you they have an entire profile built up just waiting for me, and if I ever were to sign up, it would instantly be populated because they, from friend, people I know, friends, people that do have it, they have a ton of data about me. So that regulation is a really interesting thing mm -hmm. because the commercial sector doesn't want it. The people, a lot of people say they do. But then again, these are the people who are using all these, these tools. So it's this weird kind of love triangle and you don't really understand how it's going to work. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, eventually... I don't want to say we're going to figure it out 100%. We're not. It's a case-by-case -case basis. And, and it hits all areas, not just technology. You look at, I'll, I'll, I'll throw something out there, totally different. The whole cloning thing. Before COVID, that scientist over, I think it was China, who illegally cloned and, and impregnated a woman with the clone. Mm -hmm. And the community freaked out. And for those of us kind of practical, I don't work in this field, but it's like, did you really think someone wasn't going to do something like that at some point? I mean, once you build a technology, they're going to do it. They're going to clone a human and you yeah. can put regulations, you know, six ways from Sunday. They're still going to find a way to do it. They're going to do it. So at that point, what do you do? And if you're going to put a regulation in place, are you going to police it? Are you going to mandate it? Who's going to police it? Who's going to pay for that? So it's just this whole tentacle of really interesting kind of. Um, issues that come up when you're talking about this stuff. So it, it's just not clear cut. For me, that's kind of why I like working where I work. If I'm in a company and I'm selling the product, I have to deal with a lot of these stuff. What's the legality of it? What's the more, you know, is it going to give a, a bad image to the company? But as a researcher, I can just kind of say, here's the base technology. I've thought about several of these things. Here's my suggestions. But in the, in the end, I just got to kind of let it out there. And, and, and then it's going to you know sort of take on a life of its own. Mm. We do have to think about these things. But they're really complicated. It's it's a combination of politics, science, the you know the general public, which is really difficult to model and understand. So when you bring all this up, sometimes you almost say to yourself, "It's a miracle anything comes to, you know, gets gets out there widely." But yeah. you know, we do handle it. Do we do a great job? Probably not. But um, you know, and maybe what's going on right now with COVID to kind of bring it back around to that. You're seeing. I mean, we're seeing cooperation between countries and scientists and things like that on a level we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. People have just sort of, a lot of people at science level have just sort of forgotten 
you know, okay, I'm in this country and you're this country and we're supposed to not like each other. We got we to gotta solve this thing. And if you have something, let's share it. Let's get it done. And we are seeing that. It'd be really great if that were to continue once we get past this. And hopefully it will. Yeah. So as we start wrapping up, do you um, – uh, for, first – uh, I mean, I know that you have some thoughts on how maybe we can change this um, uh, now that everyone's having to work remotely. I'll, I, I'll have to say I'm going to change back to my, to my virtual background. This is like, it's my understanding as someone that doesn't know how this stuff works, but the, the idea that Zoom is able to make this virtual background is actually like really pretty cutting edge um technology in a lot of ways um and it's you know my shoulders disappearing and and it's you know a few years from now i imagine this this stuff will look fairly silly and there will be uh some some pretty big especially now that we live in a world where people are you know there's going to be more demand for this and and more money flooding into it and everything else um do you have uh do you have any thoughts on on what you would like to see um, in terms of some of the the as this is maybe a catalyst for change in virtual communication? Um, I'll tell you, I have to. I often, in an ideal world, I use about three different programs to put together like the best product you know i i keep it simple for my guests with this show but when i'm trying to do some other things i'll use like three different things to get like the best video the best audio limit the uh, you know um interruptions in the connection and and i'm just like uh, me being new to all of this and me taking it for granted how difficult these things are i go why isn't there one product that is doing all three of these things that I'm that I'm using? It seems crazy to me. Um, but uh, if you could maybe talk a little bit about um, uh, since since you've you, you as someone who studies virtual reality are probably finding yourself in a virtual space even more than you ever have in your 25 years. Um, what would you like to see change in this space and what do you think might change in the near future? Yeah, it's a good question. In the near future, unfortunately, probably not a lot. I mean, it's going to get a little bit better, you know, bandwidth. I mean, if we tried to do bandwidth increasing and compression is increasing, things like that. Um, you know, we tried to do this even five years ago, six years ago, there'd be a lot more lag. I mean, you and I have been talking for, what, an hour now. The video has been you know, at least on my end, has been great. I, you know, I haven't yeah. had any glitches in audio or anything like that. So, so you're going to see those kind of improvements, but those are things that a lot of consumers are just like, well, that's how it should be working, and don't really understand that behind the scenes, if the infrastructure and the and the algorithms aren't quite up to par, um, it, it's a, it's a major achievement to to get it that stable and for that long. Where I'd like to see it is to tackle some of these issues that people are just learning about that a number of us kind of knew for years, but even though I knew it, I didn't, you know, I wasn't on Zoom calls for 20, 25, 30 hours a week like I am now, right? I'd be meeting in person with students and things like that. Now it's all over, all over video conferencing. So as an example, you're hearing like the term Zoomed out, right? And if you've been on a Zoom call or any video conferencing call for a number of hours, you feel you're like exhausted and you don't understand why. 
And it's like, you know, I sat in a chair and I was in this meeting or these meetings for three or four or five hours today. Why am I so tired? And I didn't do anything. Well, there's, and this is just things that my colleagues have told me. I can't give you the exact details what it is, but when you're meeting with people and face to face, there's an exchange of, of, you know, obviously a verbal, you know, and as you're going through ideas, but also you're reading people's body movements, you're making comments and you're getting immediate feedback from that. So if I see someone who's uncomfortable in the meeting or I'm trying to portray my idea and maybe I shift how I say it or my tone or something like that. And all of a sudden I, I see a little positive reaction and it can be subconscious to a degree. Over video calls, we don't get any of that. So we're constantly putting out these different things to try and connect with people. Since I'm not getting those those cues back because I can't get it over video and I don't have true three dimensions, you know, stereo vision as, as I do in real life, it's you're giving and giving and giving. You're not getting anything back. And it, it just wears down that part of your brain. There's no reward for, the, for you know, for what you're putting out there, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So. To improve that, now, does that mean stereo vision? Does that mean I truly I'm in a, in a really sort of holographic environment or truly three-dimensional stereo environment? That I don't know. I, I, I have not done a lot of research into that. I've done, you know, little proposals here and there, but not a lot of work in that area, so I can't speak to it. I can tell you there's an awful lot being poured into it. Um, there's a number of new agencies and programs with millions and millions of dollars to say, you know, look, we need to get better at this. This was even before COVID. Because look at global warming. If we could have way better conferences, could we cut down air travel? Could we cut down travel in general, really reduce emissions, things like that? And this is one of the reasons. So although video conferencing has been doing a great job, it still is, you know, it's nowhere near the real experience of being in a room with somebody or talking face to face with somebody. So I would like to see it get to a better level. And and to be honest with you, it could be a number of things. One, it could just be the visual realism. It could be like I said, going to a more 3D world where I really can perceive depth more accurately. Maybe it's better audio. Um, maybe it's it's maybe maybe it's not realism at all. You know, so one thing, you know, we joke about the virtual backgrounds and stuff. If that brings levity to a situation and kind of puts you in a good mood, that might improve the me. So there's a lot of things you can do from a psychological standpoint that are not technologically difficult, but that could improve the overall quality and satisfaction of it. So I would like to see, I mean, for me, being a pretty hardcore technician, I want more bandwidth. I want more resolution. Um, I want the better visual experience. I think that's going to be able to help. I think we also need to improve how we share. You know, in a meeting, we're not just looking at one piece of paper or one screen. That's really all we can do right now. There's a lot of multimodal sharing that's going on. Maybe I'm having a side conversation with you. I'm whispering something into your ear while the main person's presenting. You're looking at my my pad or my my tablet. They have something up on the screen. We're missing a lot of that right now. Right now, it's really sequential what mm. we do in these meetings. I talk, then you talk, then I talk. You share a screen, you talk. I look at it, I respond, and that's not how we really do it in real life. Mm. So that needs to be improved. Um, mm. You know, right now, a lot of the things that I would say in video conferences that are jokes. You know, someone can't get in, they get kicked out. Um, I talk over you. We both stop talking. We wait a second and we both say, we're sorry. You go ahead. You go ahead. We both talk again. We both stop. So those things. Yeah, but we got to solve those because that does degrade from the experience. So there's yeah. some really low hanging piece of fruit. I think that, that you can make the experience better than the sort of the longer range ones, which are, you know, the better visual experience or whether we go over to reality or augmented reality. And that's going to take uh, many years. And I, and I'd like to see any of those done. 
to be, mm. to be frank. Yeah. The different I, platforms, what you mentioned, it is interesting. Um, one, it's user preference by all means. You know, some of us have our preference of what we like. We just happen to like it. Yeah. Two, I, I mean, I, I have terrific conversations virtually. Some I'm, I'm finding yeah. some of them are better than in person because I can kind of be a little bit socially awkward sometimes. And I get a, like a little intimidated in body language. Yeah. Like, so, and so it's actually almost easier for me sometimes. Some, some people prefer texting um, things and texting drives yeah. me out of my mind, you know, and, and so. Well, here's a, here's a classic one for you. And we all, especially in the current time, we've all experienced this. You've been on calls and there's certain people who never turn their video on. Yeah. And there's certain people who always turn their video on. Yeah. Right. No matter what they're doing. Um, and then there's some that are kind of in between. There's people who, you know, sort of the, uh, uh, being a good you know, video conferencing citizen. If you're not talking and you're in a, in a large group, mute your microphone. You know, mm. eliminate feedback. People still haven't learned that. You know, as you hear the dogs barking or that kind of stuff in the background. Mm -hmm. So it's it, it, all those little things. Sometimes we joke about them, but a lot of those things are actual real problems that we're trying to solve because it's not just that problem. That's the artifact. That's one outcome. If we could solve this problem, it would solve that issue, probably four or five others also, and just make the overall experience better. Mm. But the different platforms... It isn't, you know, that's always going to kind of be there, which tool sets that people like using, but it also depends what they're built off of. So Zoom as an example was built up the ground up so that the video and audio was the number one experience, that, that it was going to be as high a quality experience as possible. Whereas like a WebEx was looking for a more comprehensive that anything you do was going to work okay. And Microsoft Teams, which is, has video or Google Hangouts has video, that was going to be, but we, we're doing a lot more than just video and audio conferencing. So it's really... It is about picking that tool that you like, but it's also to a degree understanding what that tool is good at. And they're not all good at everything. So, yeah. Mm. Uh, well, this is this has been a fantastic virtual conversation, um, and I I can't I can't wait to. Um, for all this to be over, to come and and pay you another visit sometime and Absolutely. and see see the the lab again, um, and I, I wish you the best in in all of this and and managing this situation. Thanks for all of your uh, your hard work and and uh, trying to make the world a better place and and use all these incredible um, tools to aid a lot of other people in in doing their jobs uh, as well. So. Uh, so thank you, Elliot Weiner, for joining me today and hope to see you again sometime. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Shane. All right. Awesome. See ya. All right, everybody get one of the last looks at this magnificently ridiculous mustache that I have. I was growing it. Maybe going to do some wax situation. That stuff's disgusting. I just can't. It's, it's silly. I love being silly. I like looking silly, but I just, I'm, I can't have that disaster on top of my mouth. So I'm trimming it. Just keeping the beard. Don't, don't you worry. Uh, I know there's some panic attacks out there. Keeping, keeping this beard. It's growing every day, getting a little more magnificent. So we're going to keep tabs on it. There's going to be a lot of beard updates. still. <laughs> so if you follow me on Instagram or whatever, follow me on Patreon. If you want to support the show and gain access to the Discord community, hit subscribe, 
add some comments with what you guys want to hear about. Constantly mixing things up, making some changes. Probably going to start getting more um, more authors on people as they have uh, as they have books um, coming out. It's one of the cool things that doing stuff remotely is going to allow for me to do. I'm taking some classes now that uh, school's re- remote, so I'm I'm getting a, a first ever opportunity um, to take some college classes. So I'm doing that, and I'm working on a whole bunch of cool projects that I will be sharing as they come to uh, fruition. I always have a zillion things that I'm working on, but I have like uh, three of those things that are bubbling up toward the shareable stage. Um, and uh, so, yeah, thanks for thanks for taking an interest in what I do. I promise you there's a whole lot more to come. You guys are great.